Thank you, Paul, and what a joy to be able to preach God's Word to you tonight. I also want to commend this team of elders to you. They're excellent men. Uh, some of them support the wrong soccer team, but that's okay. Whatever. Uh, this week has been a very, very wonderful week. We were in a life group in the Seapoint congregation on Wednesday night. We were at that business forum. Uh, I had some time, and Sue had time with some of the ladies, and I had time with the, these two guys, the paid elders, uh, where we dreamt and inspired one another with uh, how God's story of good news can impact on this whole Atlantic seaboard. It was really, really exciting. And then I got to preach uh, this morning, uh, after which I had a lunch with some of the emerging kind of young guys and girls, and it was really, really special. After which, you can see, I'm 68. I lead a full life, guys. I went to the Hodsons, where I moved into my accommodation with my wife, and, uh, and then I get to preach again tonight. So I, we are living such a wonderful, full, rich life, and uh, those are just uh, part of what God's called us to do, and uh, we see ourselves as a little bit of a drink offering, to use Paul's language. Paul says, I'm a drink offering poured out on the sacrifice of the service of the saints. In other words, we're not here to build a fan base. We're here to nourish, feed, strengthen you and what God is doing. And we can't think of a better thing to do with our one and only lives and what's left of them. <laughs> that was not supposed to be funny. That was supposed to be sobering. And he laughs as I pour out my heart about what's left of my life. Okay. I want to speak to you tonight on what I've called Hezekiah's Folly. He's one of the kings of Israel, an associate of uh, Isaiah's uh, uh, season of prophesying to kings. And I want you to read with me from the screen uh, this short little one chapter in Isaiah, chapter 39. It's short, punchy, to the point, prophetic message with international intrigue. Now I've got your attention. We read this together. Uh, at that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses, plural. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that is in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who, who will come from you whom you will father shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, 
the word of the Lord that you've spoken is good, or you thought. There will be peace and security in my days. My dear friends, that's the saddest leadership passage in the whole of the Old Testament. And we'll unpack a little bit of the warnings of Scripture, or don't be like this guy. And then we'll land it in there's a better way to positively live our lives as the gospel gets into us. And so I want to pray for us that we'll be able to hear this, that, uh, that we wouldn't hear it with condemnation or with heaviness. We'd hear it as something incredibly inspiring and shaping for our moment in history. So, Lord, I want to thank you for every person in the room, every couple, every family, every business per person, every student. I want to pray that you would give us uh, hearts that are really open to learn from you and to be shaped by this passage. Help us to be under this passage, not over it, not admiring it from a distance, but coming under its inspiration and its power. All of that for the sake of your name and for our good. And everybody said, amen. Good. So, some of you who are Christ followers might have a struggle from time to time when a passage like that is read. You think, wow, that like is serious stuff. But we called in the New Testament to read this kind of stuff. And so, in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11, talking about Israel and her history and her role in the purposes of God, it says, now these things happen to them as examples, and the implication is for us, and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Simply stated, all that stuff back there anticipates our moment in history. All that stuff that happened with Hezekiah has a message for us living right here in the 21st century on the Atlantic seaboard, and we need to wake up and smell is it roses or coffee or whatever? That, that stuff, yeah. And then we read these words in Colossians 1, 27 to 28. It says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. How to get everyone mature in Christ is to warn everyone and to teach everyone. And a lot of our ministry contains a mix of teaching and warning, and this one has a lot of warning that sort of screams at us, don't be like this guy, and we'll see why. So a little bit of uh, prior background, Isaiah is the contemporary prophet to the King Hezekiah, and has, uh, Hezekiah has gone through a really, really difficult time. Uh, he faced two incredible uh, tests from God. The one was what we call the adversity test around his... Uh, 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 his own illness, the kind of illness he had was massive boils, uh, and there was no natural healing method for that, and he, he was told he was going to die. The prophet said, you're going to die. And so he cries out, I, and God, God says, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, after having told him you, he's going to die, God now says to him, I'm going to add 15 years to your life. So that's the first gift. I'm going to heal you. The second gift is I'm going to give you a time span. Now, folk, I'm like 
68, and, and I'm healthy by the grace of God. I just still don't know, and I'm grateful. It's a gift. I'm healthy. I just don't know how long I'm going to live. So I've got to live each day and each year like I'm, I need to make it count for the glory of God. He's been told, you've got 15 years. You're, you've got runway to live your life, and uh, that's a gift. Uh, so those, that was the first adversity test he had was his sickness. The second adversity was that the kingdom of Assyria came and invaded Israel and had now uh, put the whole city of Jerusalem under siege. And there were these armies, hundreds of thousands of Assyrians gathered outside the city. And Hezekiah is now kind of, uh, as king, he's coaching his people how to resist this oppression. And uh, uh, I've been in what is called Hezekiah's tunnel. During that siege, Hezekiah built a tunnel from the inside of the city down through solid rock into the Kidron Valley where they were able to uh, uh, get water up into the inner part of the city. And uh, right in the middle of the tunnel is a little kink where they managed to, from two different sides, join them back then. That's an engineering feat. It's got nothing to do with the talk, but I thought you'd be interested. I've walked in that. It was my absolute highlight, that sense of, of history. And uh, the second... Uh, 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 test that he has is this, this, uh, this sense of being under siege, what he's going to do. He's king. The people are looking to him. He prays the big prayer, and God says, another prayer, I will defend this city for you, Hezekiah, in uh, 38 and verse 6. And then this is the biggest battle in Israel's history that Israel never fought. An angel from God came down and killed in one day 184,000 Assyrians overnight. And the rest fled for their lives, and there was this great uh, deliverance. So I'm saying it's so important that we understand the background. This is a guy who's had an encounter with God. This is a guy who has been rescued at a personal level and at a national level. This is a guy who's experienced the personal intervention, supernatural care of God in his life. And then chapter 39, what we just read, Isaiah is telling him the summary is because you went and opened up your treasuries to those foreign kings, the Babylonians, and their envoy of leaders, they are going to plunder the palace, the temple, with all the temple uh, uh, artifacts and uh, uh, servicing gold and silver and all that stuff for the sacrifices, and is going to haul away every last national treasure that you have. And then says, and Hezekiah, your as yet unborn sons, the ones you're still going to father, they're going to be castrated and taken into Babylon as slaves. Now, guys, how does a guy get from there to this? How does a guy who experiences so much of the mercy of God, and I want to say to you, my heart breaks because I've been in ministry for 43 years, and I'm re meeting leaders all over the world that started so well, and then they mess it up in some stupid way where they, it seems like their brains went AWOL. But what's worse, not what happened to, his, to Hezekiah, what's worse is his response to the prophetic word. He doesn't hit the deck in repentance. 
He says, the word of the Lord you've spoken is good. What's good about that prophetic word of judgment? And it gets worse. He says, at least there will be peace and security in my days. What a tragic, short-sighted view of how to do life. Here's this man who, in, in, in these moments of interaction with Isaiah, is revealing his heart as himself as heartless. And he's just simply relieved that it's not going to happen to him in his lifetime. It's going to happen to his kids down the road. He's self-centered because what happens after he got healed, after the deliver deliverance, he goes on an acquisition trail. He starts to gather riches and wealth untold, uh, maybe not quite in the, in the category of Solomon, but unbelievable, and he had to build bigger barns. It reminds us of that parable Jesus told of the man who kept earning and then uh, just built bigger and bigger barns to be able to gather his wealth. So a man who started off his reign that was marked by godliness, widespread peace. He had taken down all the idols off the high places. He's back in the basic human default of selfishness. He is self-obsessed. And that's the truth for every one of us. We have this potential to, to swap Yahweh for numero uno ourselves. And he had fallen prey to idols of comfort, idols of power, idols of control, idols of superiority. And for Hezekiah, he didn't need to name his idols. He simply needed to rank them. And I would say that's very true of our moment in history. In summary, Hezekiah, in his demise, it's Hezekiah is all about Hezekiah. Last point about Hezekiah, he's living without God's presence. Where's that, Rigby? Where's that? I'm glad you've asked. Here it is, 2 Chronicles 32 and verse 31. And so, in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign the Lord had done, in this passage, they came to inquire about the healing. In, in this passage, that healing was accompanied by the moving of the sun by 10 degrees, this massive supernatural miracle. But they had come to hear about Yahweh's works. What does Hezekiah do? He opens up the treasuries to show how rich and wealthy he is. He doesn't tell, tell them anything about the kindness. He doesn't testify. The gospel has gone AWOL in his life because his heart has gone AWOL from God. We read these words. The sign had been done. They came to inquire. Uh, but God had left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. Folks, there's a, there's a judgment. When God leaves us to ourselves, and in a sense, God leaves him. Not that sense of you and I would understand Jesus said, I'd never leave you nor forsake you. I'm with you even to the end of it. No, God is with Hezekiah in terms of uh, the covenant relationship of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he's not with him as a current agency. He's not with him. He's heard, got the prophecy from, from uh, Isaiah, and that's it. From then on, he is deaf to the voice of God, and God has left him. There's no immediate sense of circumstantial help. He's on his own. 
because he was so committed in that direction already. And folk, in summary, Hezekiah had passed God's adversity tests in the first part of his reign, only later to fail God's prosperity tests. And folk, there's a little saying that says, prosperity will test us like adversity never will. We really find out what we're about when we start earning the money, we start acquiring, we start getting those dividends and those shares and our businesses grow and we start to believe the spin. My own hands have done all of this, but it's the Lord who gives you the ability to create wealth. So let's follow Hezekiah's uh, uh, internal drift and where it leads. Number one, it's not good for Hezekiah himself. What's been going on in his life is not good. He has drifted over time from his first love. He's drifted from those deep convictions about who God was, the covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Overnight, in the season of his life, Hezekiah's dazzled by a doomed culture. Babylon was going to be doomed, but he's dazzled by their culture and the kingdom that it is, and that it will ultimately fail and fall. Hezekiah wasn't good for Hezekiah what was going on. He forgot for a season whom he, in whom he had trusted, he forgot in whom he had believed, he forgot in whom he had hoped, and upon whom he had counted. He forgot everything in his eagerness to secure his own desperate years of peace and power. And so the man whose faith stood firm against Assyrian intimidation melts in the face of Babylonian flattery. So this is a little quote coming out of my reflection on this. When we lose deep conviction about God, we drift into shallow commitment. Let me say it again. When we lose deep conviction about God, the stuff that we believe when we cross the line of faith, the stuff that ordered our lives in a new way in terms of our spiritual disciplines and our rhythms, when we lose conviction about that, it's just a matter of time where we drift into shallow commitments. And folk, we are in a commitment-phobic age where people don't like to make commitments. That's self-autonomy. And folk, the God who we've said we're going to serve is the God who's made the ultimate sacrifice. He sent His Son into the world to reach us. This gospel moves forward on the basis of commitments from lives that have been ravished by the mercy of God. So if... When we lose deep conviction, we drift into shallow commitments. The opposite is true. Shallow commitments current in play are a reflection of lost conviction or drifting from what we're called to believe and anchor our lives on. This morning in, in the, the worship, somebody shared encouragement about God's not wanting to paper over the cracks in our circumstances. He's wanting to fix the foundations of our lives because it's the foundations that we actually build anything of substance on. So it wasn't good for Hezekiah. We see it playing out in his life. He'd forgotten everything. Second, it wasn't good for future generations. Think about it. Here's a guy who's king and has just been told that his yet-to-be-born offspring are ultimately going to be castrated. Now, just excuse the crudeness of, of, of this reality, but it's being described. It's, it's right in our face. What does God want to see in there? For Hezekiah, there is no future. Psalm 78 
captures four generations that are supposed to be in a family line. We should, you see, God says to, Moses says to the readers there, you fathers, teach your children who will be able to teach their children's children's children. You can go and read it. There's like four generations. That's a hundred-year vision. We need to be, as leaders today, not overly obsessed with our little brief moment in history, which is like a burp against the backdrop of eternity. We need to be saying, I want to be part of it, and I want to set up my children. When a man says, oh, oh so all this calamity is coming. Oh, I'm going to lose my kids. As long, that's, that's good, but it's not good for his kids. And it's not good for future generations. And friends, as I've been among you this morning and speaking to leaders and hearing where you're going in your preaching series on parenting and hearing the cry of little ones. And this morning when I was preaching, they were having such fun. You could hear the chaos and joyful wonder of those kids. I'm telling you, and I want you to hear it. God is doing something very special in Seapoint. God is wanting to see churches full of young families and young kids and wants us to live with a sense of we can be part of building a vision of hope for future generations. And, and, and he's a roadblock to that for me. I, say, I, I just don't want any of what I see in Hezekiah. This is the man who one chapter earlier prayed this. One chapter earlier he says, the living, the living man, he shall praise you as I do this day. So this is after he's, got, he's been delivered from the Assyrians and his health. This is before Isaiah's passage. He says, the living, the living man, he shall praise you as I do this day. The Father shall make known your truth to the children. Hezekiah prayed that prayer one chapter earlier, but he lost the conviction and drifted from it and cursed his downline. He did get one son that kind of sneaked in under the radar by the name of Manasseh, who went on to be an even worse king. What kind of king would come from Hezekiah, who had been exposed to such crass materialism, and he grew up probably having a father overcommitted to work and gain, and undercommitted to fathering and discipling and shaping. Folks, we want to we turn that on its head in our little community. Hezekiah built that tunnel, but actually the thing we should mirror, remember him by is for tunnel vision. He had this narrow little thing, as long as, it's, as, long as my life's okay. Folk, true legacy doesn't live, in, live on in the institutions we've built. True legacy lives on in the children, the sons and daughters we've raised, in the leaders we're investing in. In those we're pouring ourselves out on, that's true legacy. And I want to call us to that. Thirdly, it wasn't good for Israel and Jerusalem. Now, the commentators say the cause of the exile and the loss of Jerusalem is complex, but it seems clear, listen carefully to this, that the primary cause for Jerusalem's destruction lies with Hezekiah's cavalier cooperation with evil superpowers. Look, our city will also be affected by our compromises on the one hand and our convictions on the other. This talk is around wanting to call us back to convictions and away from compromises. 
I'm not addressing any particular compromise, so relax. I'm talking about the culture itself is diluting our passion and our alignment and our confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ to blast a hope, a hole through the despair and negativity around us. He failed to see beyond the 15 years that he had actually set up the whole nation for a 70-year period of captivity. Talk about pun, uh, narrow vision. So, okay. Just go, because now I'm going to give us the positive side of not Hezekiah, but how we can respond to this in a way that glorifies God. Because remember, I spoke to you that these are warnings. Don't go there. And so stated positively, we're heeding the warnings, and we're heading toward maturity. If, number one, we're living with a high view of God, honoring God as God. Too many of us, through the busyness of life, can find that our revelation of God dumbs down. It gets skinny, and sometimes we, 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 when, we, when we compromise, we think we've been overwhelmed by sin and temptation and life struggles. We haven't been overwhelmed by life struggles. We've been underwhelmed by who God is. We don't get, get back by to seeing who God really is. And there's a verse that captures this. Uh, in Second Chronicles 32, verse 25, it says, But Hezekiah did not return according to the benefit done to him. Didn't return to God the ben- according to the benefit done to him. You know what I struggle with in this verse? It sounds like a transaction, eh? God says, I bailed you out against the Syrians. I gave you your health. And now you didn't return to me according to this benefit you've received. It's not transactions. This is not a call to live with a debtor's ethic. God does us kindness. Now I owe him for the rest of my life. That's a slave master. No. Hezekiah failed to live like a rescued one. He didn't come back to God to worship, to honor, to thank him. Lord, I remember that day when you saved me. Lord, I remember that day when you delivered. Lord, I remember that day when you gave me wisdom for those decisions. Lord, I remember that day when you lavished me with your blessings and so many. I'm so grateful. He failed to live as one who's the recipient of scandalous goodness and mercy. If you've crossed the line of faith, folk, then you are a recipient of scandalous grace and mercy. Secondly, we're maturing and, and, and learning from these warnings when we see our kairos. Kairos is what the Greeks called a window of opportunity or a decisive moment. It's what Jesus was basically saying to Jerusalem in Luke 19 verse 40, 44. He, he accuses them of not recognizing their moment, the day of his visitation. He says, you didn't, you didn't recognize it. I am it. I am he that the prophets prophesied, and they failed to see the moment of opportunity. But fortunately, a few chapters later in the book of Acts, a few years later in the book of Acts, there was a moment that Jesus had come to Jerusalem. He was, uh, he, he was born sinless and perfect. He lived the perfect life. He died the perfect life, death. And on the cross, he said what? It is... But my friends, Jesus did not say, I'm finished. He didn't say the world is finished. He said, it is finished. What I've accomplished on the cross is paid in full. 
But guess what? Jesus rose from the dead, not to twiddle his thumbs in the heavens. Jesus rose from the dead and is seated by re in resurrection power, by divine approval. God raises him to say, what you did on the cross, my son, for the sins of the whole world, I approve of it now. Whew! to the right hand of majesty, you can't go higher than that, exalted to the right hand of God on high, where he now reigns, he's in session as our heavenly high priest, who is praying for the church, who is pouring out his spirit, which happened on the day of Pentecost, he says, it's good that I go away, because when I, if I go away, you, when I go away, you'll receive this gift of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will come on a body, and this body will be animated by the power and the life of God. It will be countercultural. It'll be different. It'll be supernatural. Folk, Jesus is building his church, and for 2,000 years, he's been doing that. He's been strengthening the church. The church has got its own versions of Hezekiah. Let's just be honest. But Jesus, the beautiful thing about the church is its perfect head. Keep thinking like that when you get disappointed by a headline here, then, everywhere. The head of the church is perfect, and he has perfect love, and his perfect love perfects this church. And, folk, I want to put it to you that if Jesus is reigning and he's in session, then Common Ground Seapoint needs to recognize its kairos, needs to realize there are things for us to, to dream into, to, to uh, labor into, to, uh, to participate in. And so when I chatted with uh, Carl and Paul uh, a couple of days back, I, I went back and I wrote this down. I want to challenge the elders, key leaders of Common Ground Seapoint to cast a co-crafted, God-breathed, and audacious vision that pushes back the darkness and despair around us and brings hope to the Atlantic seaboard and beyond. Can I have a mild? Yes. Okay, thank you for that. I really just think I'm just going to go and get miserable on my own. Guys, I want to tell you, beautiful things in the heavens are spoken about this community. You have got incredible leaders. You guys are incredible. The worship here, when I was in tonight and this morning, I said to the worship team, there's something special going on here. You are not coming to sing songs, friends. When we were worshiping tonight, we were engaging Yahweh. There was this connection to the transcendent sense of God in the room. God's not doing that to give us thrills. God's doing this to show us that we're in a story where God is central to it and He's getting our attention. And three aspects of that vision I uh, mentioned to congregation this morning. I am honestly just submit this to you in humility. I feel that God wants you to clarify the vision. That's what you do. If you've got a kairos, yes, this is our moment. Well, then clarify the vision. Secondly, secure the vehicle. What are the tools that we need to move on in the future? And whether it's uh, buildings or whatever it is, you don't do that every year. Get on the other side so that you can actually do the third thing, is enlist people into the ventures. Vision, vehicles, ventures. I think the Lord will breathe on that his own life. Thirdly, build the partnerships. So I just want to say just, Paul said it so well, we need more than ourselves. We need to be part of an ecosystem. Uh, a, a, a magnetic field of like-minded churches who are doing it. And folk, you need a story here on the Atlantic seaboard that is not the whole. You need a story here on the Atlantic seaboard that is a part of a bigger whole. 
When God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you and your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, we need a vision that connects us to people in different nations, in different churches. And uh, Sue and I were chatting at the Africa conference. We, ha- we sensed the Lord challenge us to get involved in supporting a pastor in Madagascar. That's not because of wanting to boast about it. I just felt like we were called to love Africa and live in Africa. And I felt the Lord say to me, I want you to live into Africa. I want you to pour in, and, and uh, not where you can see the benefits, where you're backing others in a different part of the world, and more about that. Fourthly, we're holding wealth lightly and stewarding it wisely. Hezekiah came into, a, a biz, into abundance, and, and he took the bait on what wealth brings. As we said, he failed. He passed the adversity test, but failed the prosperity test. Some of you will know, and I'm going to try and speak as fast as I can. Some of you will know that uh, in COVID, we bought a retreat center in Franschhoek. I mean, a totally ridiculous, stupid thing. I got counseled, don't do it. I had others say, do it. I looked in the mirror and said, you silly Billy, what on earth do you think you're doing over and over? But I did, we did sort of have a trigger. We said, Lord, if you give us this amount, we'll go for it. And we couldn't raise money in common ground, so we raised it from sources. And the person who put three million rand to help us secure that thing was somebody I'd never met in my life until three days before he made the commitment. And he's a big business guy. And he said to me, Rigby, I never do this kind of stuff. But what you're doing here is incredible. And I thought, man, I want that guy in my church. I want him to tell everybody who's telling me I'm a little bit crazy. Anyway, one of the guys, because if you're, if you're a good leader, you don't just listen to the guys who tell you what you want to hear. Yes? You get some guys who you know are going to tell you all the stuff you don't want to hear. And I got one of those guys who said, don't do it. This will hurt you. It'll maybe compromise your reputation. Da, 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 da. Pete was involved in some of those early conversations. It was scary. And uh, the story is simply to tell you why we did it, not what happened. But this retreat center that had 200 beds, over 200 beds with 12 and a half acres, and some of you have been there, uh, COVID wiped out the owners, and they had said, won't you buy it? We, we then go in to do it. The business guy asked me one question at the beginning. He says, so these guys couldn't do it in COVID, and they back to the wall. What makes you think you can do it? And I said, because we're not looking at this project through a two, three-year vision. We're looking at it through a hundred-year vision. And when we think what we could do for kids... And so last year was our prototype year, and outside of the weekends, which would have been another 3,000 kids in the year, we did over 3,000 kids and teachers, educators, through a specialist education program that our team wrote, uh, but, uh, but still back to the wall because we only had the deposit and limited cash flow, and I just thought, I'm going to be a fundraiser for the rest of my life. And then in October last year, the guy who said to me, don't do it, comes out. You know those days where the sun is shining and the birds are singing and the kids are screaming with joy on the field as they're playing and the educators are the best educators. He came on one of those days. <laughs> it's not always like that. And uh, came to me afterwards. He says, this is absolutely incredible. And then in February this year, he put one million U.S. dollars into our bank account. See, sometimes you got to, you got it. And why did we do it? For the sake of others and the glory of God, for the sake of those kids. You see, we can, we can, we're building islands of hope in the sea of despair. We're not, we can't, I can't take responsibility for the sea of despair, but I'm going to build some islands, and we, the church, are islands of hope in the sea of despair. 
And I want to say to you, it was for the sake of those kids, and a hundred year of kids can work out at 700,000 lives transformed year in and year out, and that's just only half, because this is a model that can be replicated into every Christian campsite all over South Africa. Like, I am a little bit of a dreamer. I do get it wrong, but this one, I have felt so excited, and we felt the breath of God. Last one, we're fighting for the next generation by insisting on a hundred-year vision for them. <laughs> Another story in the common ground thing, and I'm just going to pray. When we started off in Rondebosch, we started with 40 to 50 people in the, in, in the NASA Center, and then we got this property on the Rondebosch Common, and we were stewarding it, and eventually we bought uh, uh, various buildings. And there was a time coming, we went to two meetings in the morning and two meetings in the evening in the, in the original thing, and we were thinking, yeah, we're growing. And so we did a fundraise, and I spoke to a few business guys to extend the building. And some guys extended, uh, offered, some business guys ex uh, offered cash back then, quite a large sum of money. And uh, I was lying on the bed one afternoon on a Sunday, and I said to Sue, I said, uh, I said to Sue, love, the Lord, I think, has just spoken to me. He says, what you're doing, this building extension is not good. He wants us to take that money and invest it in the next generation. And the rebuke was, what you're doing is you pitched just to more and more bums on seats in the adult world. You failed to see the need to invest in the next generation. Here's the point. If we had not done that, we wouldn't have got the place that became Kids Zone. If we didn't get Kids Zone, we wouldn't have got the parking around the whole front of the Rondebosch common. And I don't want to go into the details of that. And if we didn't do that, we wouldn't have grown the church and started multiplying churches. This one included wouldn't exist if we didn't make a decision to say we were going to redirect finance and put it into the kids' ministry. This past July, at uh, uh, July, August, they had uh, the Holiday Club. 340, 350 kids, the best they've ever had, absolutely life-changing. People from all over the suburbs. People, folk, we're going to hear the sound of kids again. Have you noticed in so many of the sitcoms, kids are nowhere around. In the movies, kids are nowhere around. We've been trained and equipped and, and deceived into thinking that life without kids is the norm. And we've been trained to think that when you do have kids, you should go into the suburbs and find a home, a, a place that is really not. Now, I rebuke that thinking. We need to, we need to get a vision. Because if the nation of Israel could thrive eventually in Babylon, in that wicked environment, and their kids could maintain spiritual purity and all of that. Stop blowing the lie of culture that it's, we can build something here in Seapoint for future generations. And we can do something magnificent for the glory of God. But it's going to take, take being more convinced about what God can do than be mesmerized by the voices of culture in the story of Hezekiah. The beautiful thing is Jesus didn't fail like he like Hezekiah, Jesus lived the perfect life. And Jesus has committed to being in the story we're writing because it's not the story we're writing, it's his story, and we've said yes to it.